Father, we thank you, Lord, for the promises of the gospel that allow us to stand in your presence. Father, like Isaiah, whose eyes were opened to the temple vision, the thrice holy God declared so by creatures prepared especially to, to proclaim holy, holy, holy as the one who fills the earth with his glory, who fills the temple with the train of his robe, who is high and exalted and lifted up, who no mere eye, no mere human eye can stand to take in his presence of him, Lord. When Isaiah sees this glorious revelation, immediately he knows that he is not worthy of the presence of the Almighty. Woe is me, he cries. I am a man of unclean lips. And so we have cried, Lord Jesus, when the word and the law of your Holy Scripture has revealed the sin in our hearts. Woe is me. I am unworthy of your presence. I am a sinner worthy of hell, worthy of the grave. Lord, I do not deserve to be in the same room as you. Truly that which is holy, sacred, set apart, never to receive in its presence a blemish or spot or blight of any kind could never endure a sinner such as me. Save one event, a miraculous, whole-scale cleansing by the power of blood that was shed in our place. And just like the coal, that fire which refines, touched the lips of the prophet, sanctifying him for ministry. So you have sprinkled the blood of Jesus Christ, as it were, upon our sin, preparing us to be your children, to be your ambassadors, welcoming into your presence. Lord, welcome at the table of communion between a holy God and a sinful man. Lord, we thank you for these glorious realities. And as we behold them, I pray that we would stand indeed, as we have just sung, in awe of you at every occasion to meditate on your glories and to offer to you the praise that you deserve. And additionally, we pray that as we bow before the authority of your word, we pray, Lord, that we would subsequently stand in awe at what you have revealed there. And that we, Lord, would receive our marching orders and we would love the fact that you have sufficiently equipped your church with everything she needs for life and godliness, such that we study and embrace and continue to be more like you as you sanctify the believers in this room into the image of Christ our Lord. For those who may be hearing these words today who are not in the good graces of the Almighty, who yet are proclaimed guilty and enemies in light of a thrice holy God. I pray that the word and gospel that goes forth would convict them of their sin, that they might bow and repent and believe and join us in the praise of the Almighty. It's in His name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great gift and privilege and certainly worth a drive, even when it's 26 below, to gather as the saints of God and worship the name of Jesus Christ. And God has answered my prayer in bringing us here safely to do just that. So praise His holy name for at least that much. Amen. Turn in your scriptures, if you would, to Psalm 112, which will be our text today, 10 verses, proclaiming the blessings that attend those who appreciate the glories of God. A title for this morning's message could be The Rewards of Godly Fear, and a secondary title could be The Blessed Man. The man who is truly blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord 
is promised certain rewards, at least ideologically pictured, ideally pictured in this psalm. Hence, Psalm 111 and 112 go together, and Psalm 112 builds on the theme of Psalm 111. Psalm 111 was the glories of God, and Psalm 112 is the blessings that attend those who appreciate the glories of God, indeed the rewards of godly fear. Thus, the aim of this morning's message, recalling our last foray into the psalm, Psalm 111, is the following. To proclaim the glories of the God worthy of fear, to proclaim the God to be feared, and to proclaim the blessings of the God-fearing. To proclaim the God worthy of fear, and to proclaim the blessings that attend the God-fearing. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word once again? Now, out of reverence, let us listen to the authoritative, infallible, never-failing proclamation of our Lord from Psalm 112, verses 1 through 10. Here is the Holy Word of God. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 112, as we mentioned last time, joins Psalm 111 as a set, complementing one another in several ways. You may recall we referenced this before. Psalm 111 and 112 are unique in the Psalter in this sense. They are acrostic psalms, unique among seven others. So there are nine psalms that are acrostic psalms. An acrostic psalm is a song that is arranged by stanza according to the Hebrew alphabet. Stanza number one begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Don't ask me what it is. And then the second one, the third one, and so forth, until you get to what would be in the English the equivalent Z, from A to Z. We've referenced several things with respect to this literary form. This indicates that God is a God of symmetry, order, beauty, engineering, design. God is sovereign, Lord, from A to Z. As it is testified to in the Greek and the New Testament, He indeed is the Alpha and the Omega. And so the Hebrew poetry echoes the same. He is the beginning and the end, the first, the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's comprehensive. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's symmetrical. He's powerful. And He has designed all of creation, all of redemption, all of providence, all of history, and all of His Word to reflect those attributes of His greatness. And so we see not only is, are both psalms acrostic songs, and hence they go together, but there's other way, reasons that they do as well. At many points, the stanzas of Psalm 111 and 112 directly correspond to one another. And in struggling to come up with exactly or the best way to preach this message, I thought about this, but then I abandoned it because of its impracticality. But if you line up Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, 10 verses, 10 verses, line by line, what you will find is interesting parallels all the way through. Fruitful study if you want to continue a little bit more study beyond this message to see how many of the ideas line up 
phrase by phrase from one psalm to the next. So this is a feature of Hebrew poetry. In fact, parallelism, and this is parallelism that we witness across psalms. And furthermore, Psalm 111 and 112 are complementary in theme. They build on one another. Whereas Psalm 111 proclaims the glories of God, Psalm 111:2, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all those who delight in Him. Psalm 112 tells us the blessings of those who appreciate the glory. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So we have the reasons that God is glorified and the benefits of those who glory in Him. These are the themes of Psalm 111 and 112 respectively. Psalm 112 proclaims blessings attending those who truly appreciate the mighty works of a mighty God. Both songs begin with the same refrain, praise the Lord. And this phrase, praise the Lord, this commandment, this call to worship, this injunction unites them in their ultimate purpose to declare that Yahweh alone, that is the covenant name for Almighty God, which is used in both songs, Yahweh alone is praiseworthy. He's praiseworthy because of His works, and He's praiseworthy because of His blessings. Psalm 112 has the markings of wisdom literature. These songs share a structure and theme and parallel with other wisdom psalms, particularly Psalm 112 does as well. Most notably, perhaps Psalm 1. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 1, but it begins very similar to Psalm 112. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the ungodly stands in the way of wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I might have missed a phrase here or there. Um, if I uh, re recall or sing it, I can or do it from memory, but if I put myself on the spot, sometimes I miss a phrase. Nevertheless, the beginning is similar to Psalm 112.1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Blessed is the man who stands not in the way of the wicked. And these are phrases that are, uh, that are common in wisdom literature. More on that as we get into a little bit more of the background later. The songs share structure and theme parallels with other wisdom psalms and wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs is another great example, a compendium of wisdom literature. Here again, in Psalm 1, the blessed man theme appears in the introduction. But furthermore, Psalm 1 and 112 conclude in a similar fashion as well. Psalm 1 closes saying that the way of the wicked will perish, and Psalm 112 says that the desire of the wicked shall perish. He gnashes his teeth, he melts away. Though he might be angry and protest in the meantime, nevertheless, he will be judged in the end. So each of these two psalms declare the blessings of those who follow and fear the Lord, and they declare the ultimate end. They declare the day of reckoning and judgment for those who remain enemies of him. So having extolled the blessings and virtues of the one who fears the Lord, uh, we see in this literary form featured in our psalms today a number of things. Parallelism and uh, wisdom literature and didactic, that means teaching type of poetry. Now, these are literary forms that reappear commonly in the literature of the Bible. But they're not as common in our writings today. So a little deeper study and a few references of context may help us to understand what they mean to convey. And though they are not popular writing forms today, it doesn't answer the question whether they would be valuable. I think they would be. It is nevertheless, in fact, striking how precisely relevant the message of Psalm 112, 111, Psalm 1 are for our day. It is as if they were written specifically for our time. And that makes sense because God, who is transcendent, is the author of these by His Holy Spirit inspiring the authors of Scripture. 
Perhaps in light of this, our text today should inspire a generation of wisdom poets in the mold of the psalmist. And I just wrote this in your notes. One thing is certainly true. Only a fool would deny that in our day and age, we are starving for lack of biblical wisdom. If we're starving for lack of biblical wisdom, as I submit to you and judge it, there is a place to turn. Turn to the scriptures. Turn to Psalm 112, Psalm 1, Psalm 111. In fact, all of God's writings from cover to cover and therein be equipped for a calling that uh, calls you forth to proclaim the truths and the glories of our God and to enjoy the blessings that attend that call in a day and age where the wisdom of God is sorely lacking. So let us prepare ourselves by digging a little more deeply into our passage today under this heading. May God, may Yahweh be praised who grants His people the following. Number one, a rich posterity. Uh, does anyone know what posterity means? Kids, do you have any, uh, do we have any bright ones in the audience who can give us a definition of posterity? Anyone? Anyone? So I have nine children. They are my posterity, right? And if they have children, they are my posterity too. So posterity is children's, 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 children, and so on. Future generations. May God be praised, Psalm 112 proclaims, because he grants his people a rich posterity, generational blessings. Second major point. May God be praised who grants his people good graces, the good graces of providence. Real briefly, providence might be an unfamiliar term to you, but it's theological language that refers to God's work in the ordinary affairs of life and history. Providence is usually understood in three categories. God's government, His arranging all things for His end. God's uh, preserving of the systems of creation and everything the way He's ordered it. And also His concurring with all events. So God preserves, He concurs with events, and this is all for His purposes. And to those who are the godly, those who fear the Lord, there are good graces of providence that attend our way. Thirdly, uh, assurances of the soul. May Yahweh be praised who grants His people assurances of the soul, and boy, don't we need them these days. And finally, an enduring legacy, similar to point one. The legacy, the reputation of the godly is secured because of the grace of Yahweh who attends with blessings those who fear Him. Number one, may God be praised who grants His people a rich posterity, or the riches or wealth or joys or blessings that will continue for generations. Now, let me open this by referencing this concept of the blessed man. Psalm 112.1. So returning to this note from Hebrew or from uh, wisdom literature. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. As I referenced before, that's a reoccurring phrase in Scripture. Blessed is the man. If you just did a little search on your phone app, thesaurus style, or uh, what is it, concordance style, you would find the following. The blessed man, that phrase in your English Bible, ESV, is referred to in Psalm 1-1, as we mentioned. Psalm 32-2. These are in your notes. These references, by the way, if you have a copy. Psalm 34-8, Psalm 40-4, verse 94-12, 12, 1-12-1, our text today, and then Psalm 127-5. So each of these have something that, uh, the bless, that is associated with the blessed man. So blessed is the man who, first of all, delights in God's law, uh, Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, 32.2. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord, 34.8. And uh, further references continue. 
Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man whom the Lord disciplines. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, our text today. And blessed is the man, finally, 127.5, whose quiver is full of children. And so as you see these references that kind of recur in wisdom literature, this is just a sampling, you get a picture of the kinds of things that attend the rich posterity of those or that are blessings that follow those who fear the Lord. We'll give a definition of fear in a moment. But if you did a study on those again, I'm giving you a lot of extra homework today, you could see how there's sort of a gospel shape of convictions and fruit. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. What is the purpose of the law? To reveal to us our sin, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He is blessed. In other words, a man who recognizes his sin through the revealed law of God, but then finds atonement in that which God has provided. Bringing up point three, he takes refuge in him. The atonement providing God is the blessed man seeks to have his sins atoned for, refuge, salvation, he finds in him. And, and in so doing, he makes the Lord his trust. And the Lord then proceeds to discipline him as a father does a son, according to Hebrews 12 and these references from the psalm. Now, and all the while he fears the Lord, our text today, and there is fruit following this quest, including an application, Psalm 127, 128, his quiver full of children or a rich posterity that echo the praises of Yahweh from generation to generation. These are the blessings that attend the way of his people, in the ideal sense, if you will. Now, this idea of a blessed man, just a little more on that, it's a literary or a poetic device of sorts. Who is the blessed man? Well, it's sort of like an ideal in, in literature. The blessed man is something like a stand-in, representing different expressions of God's favor that attend the way of a believer in varying degrees and varying manifestations. And then Psalm 112 consolidates all of these, or many of these categories, under this heading of the blessed man who fears the Lord. So that is to say this, and sometimes in wisdom literature you'll see a different poetic device that's kind of unique to wisdom literature. For instance, a virtue can be personified. Like wisdom itself is spoken of as a person in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is spoken of as a she, and then the person of wisdom, uh, the author teaches about wisdom through this device. Well, in a similar way, the blessed man is sort of the ideal. That is to say, not all, each and every uh, one of these promises can you demand before the Lord. I'm the blessed man because you have redeemed me, therefore I should be rich, therefore I should have a good posterity, therefore the generation, and so on and so forth. Instead, it's sort of the poetic ideal. These are things, ordinarily speaking, in the way God moves in the big scope of history that attend the way of those who fear him. They may not all be experienced by you as an individual, but if you look at the big picture of how God moves in history through his people and those who fear him, you will see all of these evident in ways, shapes, and forms across generations, across times, across peoples, across eras, and so on and so forth. And so this is kind of a glorious, wide-range, panoramic scope of the blessings of the Lord that follow, generally speaking, those who fear Him. And among them, there are, and among those blessings are a rich posterity. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, if you have a copy of notes, I wrote down my favorite definition written by somebody else that I've found so far for the fear of the Lord. I've referenced this in 
messages past, but it's worth repeating. Charles Buck, writing, or his years were 1771 to 1815, wrote the following, Fear of God is that holy disposition or gracious habit formed in the soul by the Holy Spirit, whereby we are inclined to obey all God's commands and evidences itself by the following. Then he has a list. Number one, by dread of his displeasure. Number two, by desire of his favors. Number three, by regard for his excellencies. Number four, by submission to his will. Number five, gratitude for his benefits. Number six, sincerity in his worship. And seven, conscientious obedience to his commands. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, all that is packed into that phrase. We don't have time to unpack it all. Hence, I put it in your notes for further study and consideration, meditation later. Suffice it to say, when the Bible references this uh, phrase, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, you have two power-packed terms there. First, the blessed man, which we said something about, and secondly, the fear of the Lord. And you can look to the context of Scripture to fill in what exactly is communicated, and that was Charles Buck's attempt and my attempt preceding that as some related ideas. Nevertheless, a rich posterity attends the blessed man who fears the Lord. And how does this take shape? Well, blessings such as verse 2 and 3 detail. His offspring, the blessed God-fearing man, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. I guess before we get here, I should say one more thing about verse 1. The righteous man, or the blessed man who fears the Lord, greatly delights in God's commandments. Do you delight in the commands of the Lord? Do you love the things that He has prescribed? Do you think the terms and conditions that God has laid out in order to honor and to glorify Him are amazing, fruitful studies and a joyful pursuit to commit to memory and to apply in your own life? Now, in Psalm 111, we learned that the glories of God are worthy of our praise, our thanks, our study, and our remembrance. Is the law of God worthy of the same? Yes. The works of the Lord are revealed in His self-revelation. He has written down His terms, His specifics that accord with His nature and that are instructions for the way He has ordered things. And the, this is a mighty work of the Lord. In fact, that the fact that the Lord has recorded the terms of the way He has ordered things, designed things, the created order, and the nature of relationships as He's designed them, and the purposes for which we are made, and the a way that a society, a nation, can have strong foundations and a fruitful future, these are glorious works of the Lord. Indeed, the law, the terms, and the things that God has written down, His instructions, His precepts, His principles, they are worthy of our praise, our thanks, our delight and study. He should be praised, thanked, remembered, and studied because of His great work of recording His law. And this is what Psalm 112 declares. The godly man, the one who is blessed, blessed, and fears the Lord, delights greatly in His commandments. Now these days, I'm not sure what your attitude is about the law of God, but generally speaking, it's got a, there is a very low view of God's law in culture, I think you would have to agree. Many of us, many in culture, would see God's law as a hindrance to their pursuit of happiness. They prefer to set up their own terms. They prefer to be the captain of their own destiny. They prefer to make their own way. 
that prefer to declare themselves as God and create the future in their own image. And in so doing, they don't delight in the law of God. In fact, they're rebels against it. Is it an unreasonable imposition? Many say today that the law of God is written for an ancient time in a particular culture and is no longer relevant. In fact, it's bigoted, many would say. Is that a correct assumption, hypothesis? Absolutely not. What happens is, just like physical laws that God's ordained, moral laws are the same. You may despise gravity. You may declare war on gravity. You may be a rebel against gravity, but if you cheat gravity too much, like jump out of a plane without a parachute, you're going to learn that God's law is there for a reason, and you disobey it at your own peril. So it is with this moral law. Let me give you an illustration, speaking of gravity. Let's say that you have a dream. You want to be a private pilot of a light aircraft. So you get this box in the mail, and it needs some assembly. And you're not sure exactly how to fly it, so you begin to look online. So how important to you are the instructions for the assembly of your personal light aircraft? How important to you is the experience of other people who have flown this aircraft before? How important to you is the operations manual that tells you how to start the engine, how to increase the speed and velocity, how to balance the wings? How important to you is it to get the weather conditions and to learn what this aircraft can survive and what you better not go up in? Well, it should be as important to you as life itself. Because just not knowing one thing, like the range of this aircraft uh, on one tank of fuel, could absolutely mean your demise. It is so important that you know all of the laws, if you will, the operations manual, the weather conditions, the particular design, the assembly instructions, the experience of other pilots, in order for you to fly according to the design of this particular aircraft. God's law is like that for a life and for a society. And you reject it, you rebel against it, and you spurn it to your own demise. If you like the future, of, if you want a good future, a secure future as a nation, as a people, as a society, you better pay attention to the operations manual. You better pay attention to those who have experience in these things, namely the prophet, the word of God, those who have articulated the instructions. You better pay attention to the terms and the limitations of how far you can go and no further and what is the proper use and operations manual for a people and for a nation and so forth. If not, if you don't, if you despise these things, you're just as foolish as putting together and just any old way with duct tape and super glue a personal aircraft, firing it up and getting just high enough to fall uh, like, a, like an idiot out of the sky and crash into a grain silo, and then they have to clean you up and bury you the next day. Not to be too graphic, but just to make the point. A rich posterity, nevertheless, on the other side of things, is what will attend those who pay attention to God's operating instructions. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And if you do so, what is to be expected? An offspring? His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So you see here, this is the principled ideal. Loving the Lord and taking seriously his commands, living according to the operations manual that he has laid out for a healthy individual and a society will lead to security, endurance, prosperity, and fruitfulness, generally speaking. This is a multi, these are multi-generational values. I was listening to a podcast this week, and you know the hosts were lamenting the trajectory of things, and I joined them in that lament. I see a lot of reasons for, to be discouraged if you just listen to the news. 
But this fellow was a historian and a theologian. George Grant is his name. Maybe you've heard of him. And they asked George Grant, what should Christians do to push back against our increasingly degrading culture? And among the things that he said were, have children, teach them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And, uh, and the third thing I think he said was, and start a project that you won't see that you can't complete in your lifetime. And that was kind of interesting. Start a project that you can't complete in your lifetime. He went on to illustrate his point by citing a cathedral that was his favorite, and I forget the name of it, it's in Vienna. And it was built over 400 years by the townspeople. And what the townspeople did is they would drop their tools at the end of their ordinary workday, pick up their tools for building the cathedral, and over hundreds of years, over centuries, the ladies would bring some food and the masons would continue until they had this incredible church. Well, they had a different worldview than ours. They placed value in something that would endure long after they were dead. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been motivated to work on that structure. And this is interesting because it illustrates a truth of the scriptures. What God is doing right now will not come to fruition in many cases until generations later. Are you willing for the glory of the Lord and His future purposes to be obedient to Him right now, even if you don't see the full reward? If it's your generation, or if it's your children, or your children's children, or your children's 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 children, who will see the benefit of your faithfulness right now, and for you all it feels like is pain and sacrifice and endurance and people mock you and you don't see very little return and it's hardship and fiery trial, are you willing to endure recognizing that it is the case that God builds his kingdom with small bricks like you into something beautiful like him over the course of longer periods of time than the average American is willing to admit or willing to endure. And why does God do it this way? So he gets the glory. And what is the great benefit of it? Well, his purposes are advanced in spite of the failure, sin, and shortcomings, and the stupidity of people, even his people, as well-intentioned as they might be. This is the way that God builds things. He does things multi-generationally, and he does so by those who walk by faith. Faith that future generations will carry forward what they have begun. Think of Abraham. He didn't arrive at the promised land in his lifetime in a way where he built a city and established it and so forth, but his children's children's children did. They eventually entered, after 400 plus years of exile, back into the promised land. According to that covenant, God was doing something bigger than Abraham. Nevertheless, as a blessed man who feared the Lord, who delighted in his commandments in his best moments, Abraham, he enjoyed the blessings of the covenant, an offspring who would be mighty in the land, and a generation upon generation of the upright who would be blessed so long as they hung on to, the, to their delight in the word of God. A rich posterity, delighting in his commands, fearing him, the blessed man, multi-generational values. And the last thing in this first point, think of this as a mirrored righteousness. Notice verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and then the second half, and his righteousness endures forever. Remember earlier I told you if you put Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 right next to each other, you can kind of connect the dots in the lines. Notice Psalm 111.3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. It's the same phrase. Psalm 112.3, and his righteousness endures forever. In Psalm 111, the righteousness is God's righteousness. In Psalm 112, the righteousness is the blessed man's righteousness. Isn't that cool? God's righteousness becomes your own if you are the blessed man who fears him. How is this possible? 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect righteous man. And when you confess faith and believe in him, his righteousness is counted as your own. His virtues become yours. His accomplishment and fulfillment of God's law becomes the basis of your own justification, as the scriptures teach us in the gospel. And that righteousness will stand forever. What you could manufacture, come up with, dream, build, acquire, the, the best ambitions, well-laid plan, best laid plans of man will always come sh up short of endurance. There will be nothing more than another brick in the Tower of Babel to be destroyed by the God who will prove once again that he is sovereign. However, for those who proceed with the righteousness of Christ, who delight in his word and law, who seek to glorify him by being faithful, even in multi-generational commitment to his truth, they will see a righteousness bearing fruit in their life and the lives of their children that will endure because it's not their righteousness, but the righteousness of the Lord himself. Hence, God is praised, should be praised. He's worthy of our thanks, our study, our praise, and our remembrance because he grants to his people a rich posterity. Second major point, and more briefly, may Yahweh be praised who grants his people the good graces of providence. Verses 4 through 6. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So there's three things there to remember. Grace, mercy, and righteousness. Verse 5. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Three things we could perhaps highlight in verse 5 as well. Generosity, lending, and just. So, and then verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. Uh, he will be remembered forever. The good graces of providence. One of the blessings that attend the blessed man who fears the Lord is that a light dawns in the darkness for the upright. I remember when I was little in Christian school, we did the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, which I'm not so really keen on, to be honest with you anymore. And if you want to discuss that later, we can. The second allegiance that we did was way better. And it was an allegiance to the Bible. Does anyone know the Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible? Forgive me while I get my screenshot because I got to cheat. So, growing up, we used to say this every morning before Christian school would commence. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. So, mom and dad were involved in education growing up, and that brings back a lot of memories, I'm sure, if you were with me during those early years. But notice in the middle, I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's a reference to another acrostic song, Psalm 119, verse 105. This divine illumination, this light, this revelation, this understanding and awakening to truth that is proclaimed here in poetic ways comes by and through the word of God. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Those who appreciate the word of God, who in fact take the uh, instructions of Psalm 111 seriously to study it, to delight in it, to remember it, etc., they will receive an understanding that, was otherwise, that will otherwise remain blind to them. That is to say, in the darkness of our sin, in the confusion of our day, in the chaos of a wicked culture, there is a lamp and there is a light that will show you that narrow road unto the gate that leads to everlasting. And that light is God's word correctly understood and correctly applied. And so this prayer, this pledge is a great one. May the word of God be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
Now, there are promises of light and illumination and awareness and epiphanies and wisdom and intelligence and scholastic accomplishment, whatever, all over our society. Just like last week, you know, we talked about where do you, we mentioned where do you place your soul? Uh, who do you trust with your soul? And uh, Peter declares that we can, should only trust our soul to the creator. But there are a million voices on the internet that say, hey, you can trust your soul with me. In the same way, in our culture, there's a million voices out there saying, hey, I have light, I have illumination. But don't be deceived by the false light. You know, as they used to say, it might be just a train in the tunnel, right? So there's a difference between a light that dawns on us, that is the glory of God that illuminates our way, and the false lights, or the angel of light, as the devil is sometimes called, that is nothing but deception parading as something profound. The light dawns in the darkness for the upright. That is to say, the word and law of God provides for him illumination that he may see his way. And through this illumination, the graces of providence accrue to him. He finds himself being able to negotiate and navigate life much better, as if he had a GPS or a roadmap than he otherwise would. And what are the things that guide him? The word of God and these three characteristics, these three virtues, these, these three things that attend the gospel, grace, mercy, and righteousness. Grace, mercy, and righteousness are the realities um, that we realize in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord and his mercy and his righteousness we love and embrace as we embrace him. And now, these things, the atonement, the way of salvation, the understanding of our problem, sin, the understanding of our solution, Jesus Christ, the understanding of our way, worshiping Him by walking in His precepts, all of this is illuminated through the gospel. And so we have this divine illumination under the blessings that attend the way of the God-fearer. Secondly, we have dominion agency, if you will. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends and conducts his affairs with justice. So another mark of the blessed man who delights in the Lord, who fears him, delights in his commands, is he will be in charge of certain things. He will have a certain standing of influence over others. And this will be increasingly so in the ideal situation as he moves forward to be obedient to one of the first commands of Scripture, indeed to take dominion, or what is sometimes called the cultural mandate. It is well with a man who deals generously. A generous man has resources more than he needs just to subsist, you know, more than just subsistence-level resources, he has an abundance, an abundance from which to give. A generous man presupposes he has extra resources. This presupposes good stewardship. Good stewards are those who love and appreciate God's law, and this is a mark or a pattern that follows those who walk in godliness and fear him. They will begin to be successful in many cases with that which God has put them in charge of, such that they will have extra to give. Not just extra to give, but extra to lend. A man who is secure in his resources might have extra to give to others, to lend a hand to them, and so he is well positioned to be a net gain to society and moves him from an entitlement victim to one who actually contributes to the well-being of the whole, who lifts up the poor. You see, in our society, it's not necessarily held out as a virtue, for one who is self-sustaining, a good steward, financially well-off, as one example, in order to help others, and that being the primary source of social welfare. No, 
We are all instead waving our hand frantically as special interest groups so the all-important, all-powerful, and all-whatever uh, resource-laden government, all that's a lie, of course, can grant us something. But this orientation of entitled to the benevolent tyrant is wrong. It's not a picture of the best way for society to be organized. The good way for society to be organized is to, for people who fear the Lord and follow His ways to become more and more able to help others as they have extra resources in order to give and in order to lend and to lift up their fellow man. Not just in these categories of resources, but also in the category of justice. He conducts his affairs with justice or with righteousness. Now, I've been in conversations lately with people who, you know, see the future of America as quite bleak, and on most days I join them. It's easy to imagine the justice system of our nation collapsing around our heels and the courts becoming so wholly corrupt that it's really impossible to trust that if you bring your case, your civil suit to court, that you will get a just verdict. What's going to happen if that continues to be the trend in our nation? Well, I'll tell you what happened in the ancient Roman Empire. As the uh, top uh, uh, structures, as the order of that society became increasingly dilapidated and began to decay, the churches who were judging themselves justly had enough resources, biblical wisdom to offer to others, started to adjudicate cases. And the churches eventually took over the court system in due course. Why? Because even the unbeliever and the pagan could trust that their case would be heard rightly and justly within this scenario while this pagan and self-contradictory and absurd, uh, horrible, God-hating society was in flames, you know, literally in some cases, metaphorically, and others around them. So this is a good vision for the church, is it not? People ask, well, what can we do? What should we do if the trajectory of America is continued decline? Well, one answer is to have resources in justice and righteousness and otherwise so that you can be a good steward of the area and the influence that God has granted you. Can you judge a court case rightly by accessing the ethical uh, terms in Scripture and by the moral law that God has laid out there to make a good case and to actually rule in a verdict of a moral dilemma in a way that exercises good biblical jurisprudence? Well, that's something that attends the way of a blessed man who fears the Lord. He grows in these kinds of things. These are the good graces of providence, divine illumination, dominion agency. And in this, he has a growing, there is a growing dependability. It says in verse 6, the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. There is a certain a stability and a framework of consistency and that you can count on with the character of this individual and it gives him a strong foundation, even though the world is in chaos. Now, if you were to take an analogy of what culture feels like to you, I wonder if you would choose the waves of a chaotic sea. That's what I feel like. Culture feels like waves driven about on a chaotic sea. If that's true, then what is the blessed man? The blessed man is like the buoy. He's anchored to the bedrock, to the bottom, to Jesus Christ, to the law of the Lord, in, whom he, in, what he, in, in the word of God, in which he delights. And though he has moved a little bit, he is tethered so that he is not ultimately dislodged. And furthermore, the righteous man can provide a point of reference in a sea of chaos so that a boat can actually find out where they are, because it's a fixed point, and attach to that buoy so they don't suffer shipwreck or be lost at sea. And that's kind of a picture, an analogy of the blessings that attend the God-fear. Rich posterity, good graces of providence. Number three, assurance of the soul, seven and eight. 
He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. May God be praised, who grants his people assurances of the soul, a secure heart, and a strategic advantage. He is not afraid of bad news. Have you heard any bad news lately? Has it moved you to fear, to anxiety, to anguish, to stress, to concern, to a frantic response, to a sort of panic in the soul? If it has, repent, take heart, and study and meditate on Psalm 112, and ask that the Lord would give you more fear of Him. The blessed man who fears the Lord, after all, is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. The assurances of the soul that attend the man who fears the Lord, the one, you know, generically speaking, who fears the Lord, is God gives him a secure heart. Now, you can make all the applications on your own on that one. I don't have to cite examples of bad news to remind you that it's out there. I'm sure you know. But let, nevertheless, go to the anchor or find the anchor point for the soul in passages like this. These are times when we need them. Are they not, church? Secondly, under this point, strategic advantage. In verse 8, his heart is steady, he will not be afraid, and there's a reason why. And the second portion of the verse details as much. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Now, if your king rules the universe from the right hand of the Father, if your king has been raised from the dead, thus defeating the last enemy, if your king in his ascension has received as an inheritance the deed, the title deed to every kingdom of this world, you know, if you remember these truths, that he, you, can look in triumph on your adversaries. So long as Christ's enemies are your enemies, and Christ as Lord is your Lord, you will look in triumph on your enemies. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will declare ultimate victory in this world. Our uh, family has recently memorized Psalm 110, and of course we preached on it recently as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what you get there is a picture of the Trinity. David, the king, is speaking, and he says, the Lord says to my Lord, in other words, God the Father says to God the Son, and the purposes from before creation began, accomplish what I have apportioned or appointed you to do, and when you do as much, I will make every enemy your footstool. What era are we living in? We're living in the era where one by one by one, the enemies of Jesus Christ are being subject by judgment or by repentance to the footstool or to the lordship, to submission to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You've heard this from me before. I hope you hear it many times in the future. It needs to be repeated over and over again, and its applications need to be firm within our soul because it will change our perspective. The weak knees will give way to strong resolve. The stress will give way to firm commitment. Frantic prayers will turn to prayers even of calling judgment upon the enemies of God if they do not repent. A heart that is easily led astray by false and short-term promises of security will reject them through good discernment and instead place their faith in the steady hand of God's uh, firm decree and providence and the victory of His Messiah, not being afraid of bad news, but instead a firm heart trusting in the Lord. And these are God's blessings for those who fear Him. Assurances of the soul, secure heart, recognizing the strategic advantage of being in alliance with Jesus Christ, the conqueror of death, hell, in the grave.
final point this morning. May Yahweh be praised who grants to his people not just a rich posterity, the good graces of providences, of providence, assurances of the soul, but finally an enduring legacy. Verses 9 and 10. He has, speaking of the blessed man again, distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. In this enduring legacy, it comes by way or by means of kingdom investments. Those who serve the Lord and fear Him, the blessed man, will invest in the kingdom of God. It is the godly man who distributes freely and gives to the poor. When we take a portion, even of our financial means, and put it in the box in the back, labeled tithes and offerings, as we often say, as we support missionary work overseas, as our, mission, as our missionary mercy, you know, even now, is building these uh, marketplaces for women who were uh, single moms and destitute beggars on the street and vulnerable to all sorts of disease in society begin to be lifted up through the gospel and through the equipping of these good stewardship means, as we give money to that, we're investing in kingdom dollars. Now, in the short term, our money might be better appreciated according to our flesh by, as we often say, a jet ski, right? But if we set aside our jet ski fund for distributing freely to the poor, and that is to fund the things that are priorities to the Lord, then that will sow into a legacy that endures forever. This is something that falls into that category of what we said before, that which will endure beyond us. We may not see its benefits in our lifetime. We may not appreciate that short-term you know, gratification that a ride on a personal watercraft might give, but through faith and sacrifice and loving the Lord, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, we recently talked about. Nevertheless, through these means, we can be involved in something way bigger and way more important than the American dream ideal of maximal self-gratification within the boundaries of the law and your budget until you die someday. That's a pretty uh, self-centered, self-worshipping, and ridiculous vision for a life. And if you accomplish that, and that's all you have to show for at the end, you're a pitiful waste of a human being. But at the end of your life, if it can be shown that you've invested in the kingdom of God by setting aside you know, creature comforts, promises, benefits, fame, fortunes, and whatever that the world promises and all the glittering jewels of Vanity Fair, if you set that aside in order to take a sacrifice and to invest in the kingdom, maybe educating your own kids, maybe participating in some volunteer work, maybe trying to sow into your community, maybe helping others, adopting a child, these types of things, then this is uh, the mark of the one who is blessed and fears the Lord and will have something to show for it beyond the grave. What can you take with you when you die? You know, that's kind of a famous question. You know, what can you take with you when you die? And that aphorism or that wise saying is like, hey, not the motorhome, not the vacation place, not the, you know, uh, the uh, retirement destination, Boca Raton, those things you can't take with you. However, you can take souls, as we often say and remember. So for those of you that are discipling children in your homes, for those of you that are parents in the hearing of this message, that is an investment in that which riches, which can, which can outlast you, your posterity, as is the theme of this text, and can outlast the grave in that souls are eternal. And so these are examples of kingdom investment that the God-fearer will begin to value more and more 
as his heart is fixed on the Lord, and the Lord gives him a vision for that which is truly worthy of his effort and his means and his income, etc. And of course, we look to the teachings of Jesus, which reinforce this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, or as we mentioned before, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In closing today, we have this ominous declaration of judgment in verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. There is an antithesis between those who declare their allegiance to Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking, and those who remain enemies of God that exist so long as this fallen order exists. And this is a tension that is prophesied between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3. And you can expect these tensions to be pretty fierce at times and that conflict to be real and felt in your life. And there are times when it really does present to us a fiery trial, especially if we live in an era where the wicked man seems to rule the day, at least by way of the messaging out there. Nevertheless, Psalm 112 closes by encouraging us with the necessary and ultimate end of those who refuse to fear the only one worthy of praise, Yahweh himself. He might be angry with you in the meantime, but in the end, all of his uh, conflict and all of his hatred of you and all of his cancel culture attempts to quiet the voice of the truth-speaking church will end with gnashing teeth, melting away, and his desire going up in the flames of hell if he does not repent. You see, there's a final verdict at the end of Psalm 112, and this echoes the final verdict at the end of Jesus' own preaching, Matthew 25, 30. He says, in the end, the sheep will be separated from the goats, the sheep into everlasting glory, eternal life, and the goats, where will they go? Cast into flames, representing, of course, the wicked, unrepentant man, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore. With an eye toward the eternal future, the author of Psalm 112 reminds us of the perspective of God's ultimate purposes. It closes with the verdict of final judgment, just as Jesus does at the close of his teaching ministry and many other passages of Scripture and even the whole Bible, the book of Revelation, do as well. Finally, there will be those who inherit the earth and those who will gnash their teeth forever. There's two kinds of people, ultimately speaking, those who will inherit the earth and those who will gnash their teeth in anguish and hellfire forever. The wicked man sees it, he's angry. However, the righteous endures forever and his horn is exalted. There's an honorable strength that Jesus himself proclaims in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Do you guys remember? Kids, can you finish this statement? Blessed are the meek for they will. You guys know the second portion? Blessed are the meek, for they will, they shall, does anyone know? An adult can shout it out. Inherit the earth. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit in this life, one day will be citizens, heirs of the earth, indeed populating the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who were the objects of anger and scorn from the unbeliever will be comforted in the end. And then verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it goes on like this, reminding us that even though this side of glory, we may be persecuted for righteousness' sake, nevertheless, ours is the kingdom of heaven. This, ultimately speaking, is the enduring legacy 
that gives strength, confidence, and fearlessness to the believer as he continues to move forward. God has issued an ultimate verdict. Only those who are with him will inherit the earth. Placing your faith in the strength of Jesus Christ and the power of his atonement and the purposes of what he accomplished on Calvary will yield for you that faith that the Spirit sovereignly plants in your heart as a seed will blossom into a full-grown tree of inheriting the entire earth. Meanwhile, those who seem like such formidable enemies right now who seek to control the earth by their nefarious intentions and power will be reduced to gnashing their teeth in wicked, rebellious, albeit judgment forever and ever. This is the perspective of the scriptures as a whole of Jesus' teaching ministry and Psalm 111 and 112. And so we can close our study by asking this question, where do you stand today? Do you stand with the meek who will one day inherit the earth because you've placed your faith in the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins? Or are you as of yet an enemy of God and have only the teeth-gnashing hellfire future to look forward to because you have not declared your allegiance to the Lord. Do you fear Him? Do you love Him today? You know, this definition, the fear of the Lord, those, it's this disposition, this gracious habit that uh, you know, Charles Buck explained to us, of the soul, by the Holy Spirit, wherein we are inclined to obey all God's commands. Do you love God's Word? Do you seek to obey His commands? Does the evidence of the Lord and His work in your heart betray itself or work out in your life in a desire for His pleasure, desire to be in His favor, a desire for His excellencies? Do you submit to His will? Are you you, uh, grateful for His benefits in your life? Do you sincerely worship Him? Have you practiced and do you practice and seek to do ever more so a conscientious obedience to His commands? This is a test for us to see where our heart might be this day. And if you find yourself falling short in a significant way by this measure, I urge you, repent and believe. And join those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and the inheritance of a glorious future who will one day rule the earth. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that is extended to us, even in the invitation to repent and believe this day through the proclamation of your word and gospel. We also, Lord, thank you for the sanctifying, refining fire that you send in due course to purify your church and to give us, Lord, a greater dependency as we cry out for you and help in our hour of need. And we also thank you, Lord Jesus, for the instructions of your scripture when we delight and study them can shape and direct and disciple us, discipline us to be more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we have seen in Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 a revelation of your word who you are revealed in this glorious poetry. I pray as we behold it, that we would be changed into the same image, even as by the Spirit of God. And I pray the same for the rest of the scriptures as we study them, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind in such a way that we could present ourselves as a living sacrifice that would be holy and acceptable to you, recognizing that all of this is possible because Jesus Christ has died for us, died for sinners, And more than this, has raised and has ascended for the right hand of the Father. It is Him we extol. It is Him we proclaim as Lord. It is Him that we declare as worthy of our study, our praise, our thanks, and our remembrance. We pray, Lord, as we do so, that the blessings of the God-fearer would attend our way so that we might grow your kingdom to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.